Okay, so um, this is material mainly based off a section of my book, uh, Getting at, at Jesus. And I think I heard Lars explaining the, the pun in English there, the, the double sense of the new atheists trying to criticise Jesus, uh, but also looking at how do we uh, access the historical Jesus through the historical evidence. Uh, and in either case, it's not as straightforward as just doing the historical work of looking at what, what is the historical evidence, although you need to do that. The, the thing is that how you approach that task of, of looking at the, the relevant evidence depends upon what philosophical ideas you have um, that um, uh, will either help you or get in the way of uh, getting at Jesus historically speaking. So to, to illustrate this, here's a quote from the um, British atheist novelist Philip Pullman, um, who wrote uh, books including the His Dark Materials series of, of novels. Uh, and Pullman says here that Jesus was a great storyteller. Uh, he says to invent the story about the Good Samaritan. You hear it once, you never forget it. Tell it to someone else, still has the same effect. He says the man was a genius of storytelling, if nothing else. You know, I find this very interesting because here we've got Pullman as an atheist accepting some of the historical record about Jesus. So he's accepting that, that Jesus existed, um, that he uh, had this uh, ethical teaching uh, in the story of the, the Good Samaritan. But he also rejects the historical record that we have about Jesus when it comes basically to anything supernatural. Uh, no, so he says you know, he's, Jesus existed and he was a genius of storytelling and he, he told this story about the Good Samaritan, um, genius of storytelling, if nothing else. He, he wasn't anything more than a man who was good at making up stories, okay? Um, why is this? I mean, if you look, think about the story of the Good Samaritan, it's, it's a parable that appears in just one second-hand report in, in Luke's Gospel that was written at best say 30 years after Jesus told that story. Um, so we've got one second-hand report from 30 years later uh, and Pullman accepts that report. Um, about 60% of the, the, the liberal um, so Jesus seminar fellows rated um, this story as authentic and a, a further 29% rated it as probably authentic. So here we have atheists accepting this part of the historical record in one 30 year later at best secondhand report. On the other hand, if you look here, this, this table from my book Getting at Jesus that tabulates different miracles that, that Jesus is said to have performed uh, in the different gospels. And here we have uh, miracles of Jesus that appear in more than one of the gospels. Uh, we can say that here highlighted every kind of category of miracle, nature miracle, healing miracles, reviving people from the dead, um, exorcisms, each of those categories of miraculous events is attested by multiple first century sources, more than one source. Um, 
We can even say that specific miracles are attested by multiple early independent sources. I mean, look at the, the feeding of the 5,000 there is mentioned by all four of the Gospels. Uh, and that testimony plausibly includes some eyewitness reports such as John or, or Matthew stroke the, the key source behind Matthew. Um, or think about um, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The outline of Jesus' death and resurrection can be established from the very early creed uh, quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, um, the pre-Mark and Passion narrative that finds itself into, into Mark uh, 15, 16, Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts 2, and a very early sermon from Paul recorded in Acts 13. And about those sermons recorded in Acts, even a um, sceptical New Testament critic like Bar Ehrman, who's an agnostic scholar from the States, uh, comments that these speeches in Acts are unnotable because they are in many instances based on oral traditions and incorporate material uh, from the traditions about Jesus that existed long before Luke put pen to papyrus. Um, so if you lined these up together, uh, you would get the general outline of, of Jesus uh, dying, being buried, being raised and, and appearing. Or here's another tabulation of multiple first century sources for different resurrection appearances. Um, Jesus being uh, seen on at least 10 occasions and in eight of those occasions it's reported that people heard and or talked with Jesus. On at least two separate occasions, it's reported that people touched Jesus. At least seven of these reports concern appearances to groups of people. We've got multiple independent sources for at least two individual and three group appearances of the resurrected Jesus. So that's just to kind of outline the point that some of the the supernatural stuff that's rejected by someone like uh, Pullman who I quoted uh, is supported by a lot more historical evidence um, than the particular ethical teaching that I quoted Pullman as recognizing that Jesus gave that leads me to ask you know what's what's going on here why why this difference between what is accepted and what's not when what's accepted has less evidence for it than what's rejected? Uh, well, it's because of the philosophy that's being brought to understanding the evidence. So here's a very interesting quote from a New Testament scholar called Helen Bond, Helen K. Bond. Uh, and she says uh, in her book, The Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, she says, modern academic study of the historical Jesus only really began in the wake of the 18th century enlightenment uh, with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. Um, the emergence of historical criticism in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between the, the so-called Christ of faith and the, the Jesus of history. So we've got the Christ of faith the Jesus of history and we draw a distinction between those two pictures understandings of Jesus um, she says distinctions that have underpinned the the quest for the historical Jesus ever since now comment number one um, of course the Enlightenment was not 
a, uh, a monolithic anti-God movement. Um, the Enlightenment was full of uh, thinkers who were Christians or at least believed in a God uh, like Immanuel Kant or John Locke or Isaac Newton or Thomas Reed or Mary Wollstonecraft etc etc. Comment number two. Uh, the rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways does not does not allow the distinction between the Christ of faith, what religious people believe in, and the Jesus of history, what scholars get at. Uh, that that um, idea requires the distinction. And it requires that distinction regardless of the evidence, okay? So that the modern academic study of the historical Jesus, as, as described by someone like Bond, is actually the search for a Jesus that's consistent with a naturalistic worldview. That means that the Jesus that's happily acknowledged by many atheist and agnostic scholars is in a sense we could say a Jesus of faith um, an understanding of Jesus shaped by faith in naturalism or by faith in atheism uh, rather than being a Jesus of history in the sense of an understanding of Jesus that's produced by simply following the historical evidence wherever it seems to point so I think things are actually the other way around, the reverse of the picture that's that's painted in that quote uh, by by Boyd. Now, when it comes to drawing this this distinction or this line of demarcation between the so-called Jesus of history and the G the Christ of faith, um, there are three basic approaches to drawing this line. Although, of course, you can you can mix them together, and I'm going to describe them and, and look at them and illustrate them from New Atheist writings. So we have the, the metaphysical approach that basically says uh, miracles, supernatural things, can't happen um, because atheism stroke naturalism is true. Uh, or we have the, the, the epistemological approach, the how we know things approach, that miracles can't be known to have happened even if they are possible. And thirdly, we have a kind of definitional approach that some people say, where they say, um, well, even if miracles can happen, even if miracles can be known to have happened, miracles can't be mentioned within history as a subject, just because of the way we define history as a subject. So let's look at these three different lines of demarcation and take the metaphysical approach first, the idea that, well, miracles just can't happen. So here's French neo-atheist uh, Michel Onfray, and he uh, writes that we should approach uh, any supposedly, purportedly holy book uh, from, he says, uh, a standpoint that's hostile uh, to revelation, hostile to belief in revelation. And he just assumes uh, that the answer to his sort of rhetorical question of, oh, you know, who would have done the revealing, right? Who would have done the revealing? The, of course, the obvious answer to that is nobody, because there's no God there to do any revealing miraculously, okay? Well, <coughs> very briefly, as 
JP Morland and William Lane Craig here say it's only to the extent that you've got good grounds for believing atheism to be true um, can you be rationally justified in denying the possibility of miracles uh, so um, if you're you know agnostic about God you say well maybe there's a God maybe not then you have to be open to the possibility that there are miracles because if there is a God then miracles are possible. Indeed, if you're an atheist, but you're not a particularly dogmatic kind of atheist, if you're an atheist, he says, well, I think probably there's no God. But, you know, it's possible that there might be a God. And I suppose if there is a God, if there were a God, then miracles would be possible. So I have to be open to the possibility that a miracle might happen. Might happen. Um, so it's only to the extent that you've got grounds, reasons for believing atheism uh, is true, that you can be justified in denying the possibility of, of miracles or, or not looking at the evidence for miracles, only to that extent. The epistemological, the, the how we know things approach that would say, OK, look, but, you know, miracles can't be known to have happened. Uh, Daniel Dennett, for example, uh, he says, in the end, there's no true religion in the factual sense, uh, for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims. Like, there's there's not enough evidence to show that any miraculous revelation has happened, or that not enough evidence to show that Jesus rose from the dead, or whatever. It, it looks like he's making a request for evidence and saying, you know, I, I'll believe if you give me enough good evidence but there isn't enough so i don't believe that seems to be what he's saying but he also says this he says historical arguments simply cannot be introduced into serious investigation of god or gods since they're manifestly question begging i think he has the idea that um because you'd have to there'd have to be a god in order for there to be a miracle you can't use a miracle as evidence that there's a God because you'd have to assume that there is a God in order for it to make sense to, for you to believe that there is a miracle, right? But that that's just not true. <laughs> you don't have to believe that there is a God in order to believe that a miracle's happened. You have to believe that it's possible that God might exist in order for you to, to bother looking at the evidence. And if there's enough evidence, you might say, oh, look, there is enough evidence that a miracle happened and that therefore there's a God. That That's the right way around to think of it. It's actually Dennett who, who begs the question against Revelation by invoking what he calls the scientific method. This is how we would go about investigating miracle claims using the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles. So actually it's Dennett who begs the question here, not people who, who advance uh, arguments for miracles. Or Dawkins, he criticises religious faith as requiring blind trust, blind faith, uh, trust in the absence of evidence, or even against the evidence, in the teeth of evidence. So again, it seems like Dawkins is, Dawkins is saying the problem is with a lack of evidence for miracles. It seems like he's asking us, to give him good evidence but again he asserts you know the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in a miracle 
without embarrassment. Ooh, you know, how embarrassing you believe, admit to a believing in a miracle. In other words, he's saying, I, I, of course, I won't believe in any evidence for a miracle, so that's far too embarrassing. Um, so is he actually asking for the evidence and, and therefore being open to being convinced by sufficient evidence? Or is he saying that no amount of evidence would ever convince him because that's far too embarrassing? Uh, this is a double standard. Or uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he uh, appealed to uh, writings of the sceptical Scottish philosopher David Hume. Um, he said David Hume wrote the last word on the subject of miracles and Hume was famously sceptical about uh, miracles. And as Craig reports, the, 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 the problems with the fallaciousness of Hume's reasonings being recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject of miracles today. And that's not just Christian philosophers, that's philosophers writing on the subject. Um, you may want to ask uh, questions about what Hume's arguments were and so on, but uh, I'm not going to go into them uh, here and now. Um, thirdly, some people take the, the definitional uh, approach of saying that miracles just can't be mentioned within history. That's you know how we define the subject. Um, this goes back to a chap called Albert Schweitzer, uh, who said that the exclusion of miracles from our view of history has been universally recognised as a principle of criticism, so that miracle no longer concerns the historian, either positively or negatively. Now, historians aren't saying miracles don't happen or didn't happen. Um, we're just not mentioning them. We're just not talking about it, because that's what it means to do history. Likewise, the, the Jesus Seminar endorsed uh, D.F. Strauss's distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith along these lines. The, the first pillar of scholarly wisdom, and they contend that by definition, the historical Jesus must be a non-supernatural figure, just because that's what it means to do a historical portrait of someone. Um, so again, the, the seminar there, thereby guarantees by definition that miraculous explanations are non-historical, irrespective of the evidence, irrespective of the facts. Uh, well, if that's the approach that people want to take to history as a subject, you know, let me introduce you to a new subject that I've invented, which I think is much more interesting, called What Happened in the Past Studies, which I define uh, differently. So on the left here we have history, where uh, miracles are excluded just by definition, we're not allowed to mention them. But on the right, in what happened in the past studies, uh, claims about miracles are allowed to be evaluated by examining the historical evidence. Gosh, which subject do you think would be more interesting to study? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so as the atheist philosopher of science, um, Bradley Modden, here he's talking about how people sometimes try and define science as um, excluding the supernatural by definition. But we could apply what he says equally to, to history as a, as a scientia, a scientific study uh, of um, what we can know. Um, so I've added or history sometimes in brackets here. But he says, you know, if science or history really is permanently committed to, to what's technically called methodological naturalism. Our, our method of investigation uh, must be naturalistic or must exclude 
ideas of the supernatural. If science or history is really permanently committed to that, it follows that the aim of science or history is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science or history would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. He, he concludes, as an atheist philosopher of science, that science is better off without being shackled, without being tied to this idea of methodological naturalism, because it means that science is no longer the search for truth. And if science is anything, it should be the search for, for truth. And I think we could say exactly the same thing should apply uh, to history. Uh, as the atheist uh, philosopher uh, Thomas Nagel says, um, a purely semantic, a purely sort of definitional classification of uh, a hypothesis of an idea or its denial as belonging to science or to history, you know, as defined in a certain way, um, is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Uh, you know, if you want to know, is it true or false that Jesus rose from the dead? You're just going to have no interest in the subject of history as defined as automatically excluding anything supernatural. Because you want to know, is it true or false that Jesus rose from the dead? You don't want to know. Is it compatible with someone's definition of how you should sub study a subject that Jesus rose from the dead or not? That's a really boring question, right? So, to summarise... Uh, atheists, and particularly neo-atheists, often attack Christianity, attack Jesus, holding, wielding these sort of scientific-sounding demands for evidence. You know, there's not, there's not enough evidence. It's, you can't believe in that anymore, kind of thing. There's, there's no evidence for the resurrection. And they do that on the false assumption, of course, that, that there isn't any evidence. Um, but they actually, when you dig down into it, they actually reject miracles on philosophical on a priori before experience before looking at the evidence grounds and, and that's why in the works of the new atheists they they rarely get into looking at the historical evidence for say the resurrection and when they do it's very cursory and brief um, because of this double standard really i think where they, they don't really take the idea seriously because of the philosophy that they bring to the investigation. I think we can say that the so-called Jesus of history is actually a, a Jesus of faith in various a priori constraints upon historical investigation. And we need to look at those philosophical constraints and deal with them, get rid of those roadblocks to actually investigating what does the what is the relevant evidence and, and what's the best explanation for the relevant evidence. Um, there is, I think, no good reason why the so-called Christ of faith should not actually be the Christ of history. They should not be one and the same if the evidence supports that conclusion. Um, but of course, uh, that would lead us into a whole uh, different topic.